When I was in the sixth grade, my brother got in a fight with a bully. Not a good idea. And that bully got him to the ground, held him down, and spit in his face. If you really want to insult someone and want to show how little you think of them, spit on them. In the early years of the church, some baptisms, at some baptisms, the minister would ask the one being baptized, do you renounce the devil and all his works? And the recipient would say, I do. And then to symbolize the renunciation of the one baptized toward uh, the devil, he would spit toward the west, which is the symbolic domain of, this, of Satan, just like he was spitting on the devil. Spitting in someone's face has lived for centuries as one of the most provocative means of demonstrating disfavor. In fact, some parents tell their kids not to spit anywhere at any time. It's so gross and disgusting. When I was in high school, the big rage was chewing tobacco. That was the cool thing if you were a guy. And for some reason, I, I guess maybe it was Wisconsin, but the school allowed it in the classrooms. And so during class, you know, the boys would have their little coffee can down there and spitting into it. It's just really gross. Well, they're spitting the Bible. Deuteronomy 25 says, However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. And then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. In other words, if a man doesn't carry out his responsibility to his family, and in this case, marrying the wife of the deceased brother, spit on him. When you put your spit on someone, you might as well call him a dog. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 8. We'll have uh, the scriptures on the uh, board as well. But we're going to see that Jesus was a spitter as well. Mark 8, 22. They came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? So Jesus spits in this man's eye. And you would think if there was one time the disciples might interrupt Jesus, it would be right here and suggest to him that there might be a better way, Lord, to make your point about this blind man's cure and curing him than spitting in his eye. Numbers 12, 14 is another spit verse. Uh, the Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? And it looks like Jesus is disgracing this blind man on you, you know. So what's he doing? Why spit in the blind man's eye? One theory is that spitting was considered an unclean act, like this daughter would be in disgrace for seven days. And so one possibility is Jesus uses an unclean act to make the blind man clean. Blindness was considered unclean in the Old Testament, uh, uh, cultically unclean. So when he was able to see again, then he was made clean. But Jesus used his unclean means to do it. And it's possible that Jesus intentionally breaks a purity code to make someone pure. Maybe to show that purity codes are no longer in vogue, maybe they don't work. Avoiding spit doesn't make someone clean or whole. So uh, maybe he's doing away with purity codes here. Another possibility... Spit has always been gross. I mean, I don't know of any time in culture, you know, any culture where it's a good thing. It's repulsive and messy. You know what else is gross and messy and repulsive in the first century? Crucifixions. And another possibility is that the spit points us to the cross. 
In the ancient world, to die on a cross was humiliation of the highest kind. Just like spitting on someone is a humiliation of the highest kind. One preacher said about crosses, I can't understand cross necklaces or crucifix necklaces. He says, I find something tragically ironic. If consumers had even half an idea of the meaning of the cross, the value and interest of such jewelry would plummet. Most likely, people knew the real meaning of the cross. They would tear the necklace from their necks and toss it into the sea. If a cross can be made fashionable to fit every neck, it cannot be long before crowds will clamor for a 14-carat necklace with a noose or a syringe or an electric chair. Now, up to now in Mark, the cross has not been mentioned. In this chapter, in fact, in the very next section after this spitting section, the cross will be mentioned for the first time in Mark's gospel. So, maybe this healing is a preparation, a preparatory act for the pronouncement that Jesus is about to make about the crucifixion. Jesus is going to be beaten, mocked, spit upon, and then crucified. And that humiliation and that messiness is ultimately what saves us. And it's the humiliation of this spit that also heals the blind man. So you can see parallels. The spit heals the blind man and the cross heals us. Going on, after Jesus spits in his eye, this guy, guy says, he looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Here's another strange thing about this story. Jesus spits and touches the blind man, and he sees, and he sees people, but they look like trees. In other words, he can only partially see. He can see, but not clearly. And this story of the healing of blind man at Bethsaida is found only in Mark. Matthew, Luke, and John don't include it. Nowhere else is this talked about in the New Testament. You wonder why not. We don't know exactly for sure, but some speculate that a two-step healing process just didn't fit the image of a mighty Messiah. So the other writers omitted this story. Did Jesus lack power? Why does it take two touches to get this guy healed? Well, this one, I think, is a little easier to figure out than the spit issue. Right before this story, Jesus teaches the disciples, and then it says in verse 17, he says, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? Verse 21, he says, do you still not understand? And then Mark records this two-stage healing of the blind man. The blind man cannot see at all, and then he can see partially after one spit, after one touch and spit, and then he can see clearly after another touch. He can now sing, I can see clearly now. Yeah. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. However, the blind man can sing it, the disciples still cannot. Jesus has just criticized the disciples for their blindness. They still don't understand. We're halfway through Mark. They're still not getting it. And you wonder as you read through Mark's gospel, will the disciples ever see clearly? Will they ever get it? Well, following the healing of the blind man, going on verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So Jesus raises the question of his own identity. Back in chapter 6, the residents of Jesus' hometown speculated about who he was. They were wondering about his identity, just like people are still today. 
People still wonder, who is this guy? But they ask, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Who is this guy? He looks like a Messiah, but he's just like one of us. And now Jesus raises the question with his disciples, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And I'm wondering, when Jesus asks this question, what is going on in his, in his mind? Is he nervous? Wondering, are these 12 gonna ever, are they ever going to get it? Peter gives the right answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But Jesus tells him not to tell anyone. Because what happens next shows that Peter does not understand yet the essence of his answer. He doesn't fully get it. Peter sees, but he only partially sees. And the reason Jesus doesn't want them telling anyone that he's a Christ is he's, they still don't know what it all means. So Jesus goes on to explain what it means. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly, clearly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned to look at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have advised the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Peter evidently assumed that if Jesus was indeed the Messiah that Jesus would incite revolution and defeat the enemy and inflict suffering on the bad guys, in this case, the Romans. Messiahs don't suffer and die. Messiahs come and make others suffer and die. Besides, what possible good could a dead Messiah be? So he rebukes Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him right back. They're still blind. By the way, the word for rebuke here is the same word Jesus used when he rebukes demons. And the verb suggests that when Peter rebukes Jesus, that he sees something demonic in Jesus that needs to be rebuked. Plus, Jesus, this is just as bad, Peter, in rebuking Jesus, implies that he knows more than Jesus about what it means to be a Messiah, okay? He, he put himself in a position superior to his own master, and it happens today all the time, by the way. We put ourselves above Jesus. So he's telling the Messiah how to be a Messiah, and the issue comes out, who's in charge here? Who's calling the shots? If Jesus is indeed the Christ or the Messiah, as Peter's just confessed, then Peter has given up his right to define what Christ means. Let the Christ define what Christ means. So Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter says, get behind me, because the proper position for disciples is behind. Not besides, not over or in front of. Get behind me. Followers, follow Followers don't guide, lead, or decide. They just obey. And when you put yourself above Christ or try to dissuade his mission or change his mission, you become a devil. Get behind me, Satan. Those closest to Jesus here actually become an enemy here at this time. And then Jesus makes it very clear. He says, listen, guys, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then he says, the same for you. If you want to become my follower, anyone wants, let them deny themselves and take up a cross. And the cross only had one connotation in Roman Empire, and that was execution. You will die. And it was a repulsive death. One writer says the crucifixion was considered so vile that in polite Roman conversation, it was regarded as obscene. It was a swear word. 
you may as well spit in public as talk about the crucifixion. But the disciples, they're blind. They just don't get that this is what a Messiah does. A Messiah is to give us victory and rescue us. But this one is going to suffer and die. And then he calls us to take up a cross. It's like taking up an electric chair. Do we get it, you and me? Do we see clearly now? If you think Christianity is a nice moral teaching so that your kids can grow up to be better people, I can just hear Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan. That's not Christianity. Or if Christianity is an introspective self-actualization and the road to my self-fulfillment, get behind me, Satan. Or if following Christ is about making me healthy and wealthy, or if Christ is a conveyor of private spiritual blessings, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. If following Christ means that you have to be a Democrat or Republican, get behind me you devil. When we redefine his mission and put ourselves in a position over Jesus, we are not being followers. We are the enemy. Well, after Jesus explains what following him means, he is transfigured in Mark 9, 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around, and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Lent began this past February 18th, this past Wednesday, 40 days before Easter. Maybe you've seen some people with ashes on their forehead. And very often, this transfiguration story is the text for the Sunday associated with Lent. It's called the transfiguration. The word is actually metamorphosis, um, and Jesus was changed. He climbs the mountain, reminding of Moses climbing the Mount Sinai and Elijah climbing Mount Horeb. His clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. White clothes in, uh, is the clothing of purity and martyrdom. You'll find white robes all over the book of Revelation. And they represent his followers who've been made clean by the blood of Jesus in these white robes. And in Revelation 6, those who were killed because of the word of God were given white robes, the martyrs. So Jesus has just said, I'm going to die, and you disciples must die. And now in this transfiguration, he's portrayed in the heavenly garb of a martyr. The disciples want to stay on the mountaintop. Mark says that Peter did not know what to say, for they were afraid. And Peter expresses what we all want. We want to stay on the mountaintop, the mountaintop experience. Stay with Jesus and the holy people. We don't want to go off the mountain and face suffering and death. And only three of them were up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John. And these three were the same three who accompanied Jesus into Jairus' house and witnessed the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. These are the three now who see Moses and Elijah, who'd been dead for centuries, now standing on the mountain alive. So these three disciples have seen at least three resurrections to this point. And then on the way down, they kept this matter to themselves, discussing, what's rising from the dead mean? Duh! Just blind. 
So the transfigured, all this was supposed to be a revealing, a revelation to them to open their eyes, still blind. So we read a lot of text today, but the section begins with the two-stage healing of the blind man by Jesus. The, the, restoration, the restoration wasn't an easy one-step process. It took a couple of steps. But the healing of him, of the blind man, was simple compared to the difficulty of getting the disciples to see the truth of what was right before their eyes. So the section opens with a blind man and closes with blind men. Richard Dawkins is probably the foremost atheist in the world today. He's the author of The God Delusion, and a little while ago he debated John Lennox, who is a professor of mathematics at Oxford, and they debated the existence of God. And at one point Dawkins says this about John Lennox and about Christians. He says, they, he believes that the creator of the universe, the God who devised the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the physical constants, who devised the parsecs of space, billions of light years of space, billions of years of time, that this genius of mathematics and physical science could not think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive. That, says Dawkins, is profoundly unscientific not only is it unscientific but it doesn't do justice to the grandeur of the universe it is petty it is small it is pathetic and that's the god that christians believe in god tortured and executed it's repulsive yep the cross like spit turns us off a stumbling block to jews foolishness to the gentiles Following Jesus just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to a bunch of people. And following Jesus can be messy because you might get spit upon like he did. But his death is what gives life, just like that humiliating spit healed the blind man. One preacher was preaching on this text, and he tells this about his uncle's shoe shop. And he asked this uncle how he could make those shoes so shiny. If you were in the army, you know about this. He said, polish is good, a clean cloth and a broad brush was helpful, a strong and carry hand was necessary, but if you wanted to get a superior shine, you need what? Spit. Buff the polish up, mix the spit in, massage the leather all around, and by the time you finish, you'll be able to see your face in the shine. So when you get a shiny shoe from his uncle's shop, there was always some spit involved. The end result's a great shine, but the means to it was repulsive. I can see clearly now because I can see that my purity comes from a repulsive death. There's an old hymn that says, I was blind, but now I see. I need to die to myself. No one wants to do that. It's repulsive. But the end result is purity and a pure shine. Die to getting your own way. Die to the idols around you so that you can truly, truly live. Now, I wanted to share something that maybe many of you knew, maybe you've already seen this video, but I think it's a great way to see how the gospel transforms.